At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. Welcome back to the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. So what are we talking about in this episode, Lauren? Today, we are geeking out on a brand new type of genome editing tool. So what makes this new tool so special? A couple different things. First is what it edits, which is the mitochondrial genome. And you'll probably recall that the mitochondrion is an organelle that is always described as the powerhouse of the cell. It has its own genome that encodes some critical proteins and RNA, but to date, none of our genome editing techniques have been able to touch it. Second, in addition to being the first mitochondrial genome editor, the tool that we're discussing edits the genome in a way that is distinct from any of the previous editors, like CRISPR. And lastly, I just think it's really cool that the editing enzyme is derived from a toxin that bacteria use in their interbacterial warfare. That's super cool. So why do we want to edit the mitochondrial genome anyways? Mutations in the mitochondrial genome cause over 150 different human diseases. So this editor could be used to create new models of these diseases to better understand them. And then perhaps one day it could be used as a form of gene therapy to treat them. So who are your guests on the show today? Today, I've got Jorge Conde, a general partner here at A16Z, and Andy Tran, a deal partner on the bio team. And both are experts in genomics and genome engineering. And our conversation kicks off with Andy describing what drew him to this paper. I was personally really excited about this project. It showcased engineering biology at its finest. So for the first ever time, this gene editing tool capable of making these targeted single base pair changes in the DNA of mitochondria, which is pretty huge for the entire field. And this paper does a really good job in laying out all the concrete steps and the thought process that they took to create such a novel tool. I thought there were two aspects on both ends of that spectrum that I thought were particularly neat. The first one is it is helpful to start by rummaging through Mother Nature's toolbox. So they said, okay, if we want to figure out how to edit mitochondrial DNA, you know, is there anything that exists already in nature that would be a useful starting point? But the other end of the spectrum is a great example of taking, you know, what Mother Nature has given us and find ways to break it down into pieces so that they have high utility for a predetermined purpose. And in this case, finding out how to make precision edits on double-stranded DNA in mitochondria. Yeah, I think... It's also reflected in the authorship. You've got the microbiologists who found the base editor initially, who then worked with the group who did the enzyme engineering, and then also with a mitochondrial biology group to show the actual impact that it can have on a cell. I think it's a really well-rounded paper and kind of 
hits all the aspects that you would really want to see. Yeah, I agree. It's worth taking a step back with the question of why does the mitochondria have a genome to begin with? This is sort of a second genome that lives within our bodies. It's separate and distinct from the genome that's contained on the 23 chromosomes that you inherit from your mom and dad. This is something that you inherit exclusively from mom. And it's believed that it has its own genome because it probably was some sort of organism that was ingested by the cell at some point in ancient history that eventually became an essential part of the cell's function. Endosymbiotic theory. That's right. Now, the genome itself is not particularly large. It's less than 20,000 base pairs, and it encodes for a relatively small number of proteins, something on the order of 13 proteins. And this is a genome that is critically important. Errors in mitochondrial DNA can give rise to all kinds of inherited diseases, some of which are very, very detrimental. And so the ability to address these errors would be an important breakthrough in our ability to treat some pretty intractable and devastating diseases. Yeah, the main function being the powerhouse of the cell, all these genes encode for you know things that help this mitochondria do oxidative phosphorylation to basically creating the energy for the cell. And so a lot of the mitochondrial defects that we'll see are related to you know metabolic-related diseases, cardiomyopathy, different neurology-based diseases because of this impairment on creating chemical energy to drive a lot of these important hormones and neurotransmitters. Yeah, the mitochondrial genome, it's smaller, it's much more compact, but it encodes these really critical, essential proteins, which leads to when there is mutations in the mitochondrial genome, this can have very severe defects for the cell biology. So as we mentioned before, so far, the tools that we've been able to develop for editing the nuclear genome haven't worked in the mitochondrial genome. So why is that? I think we've kind of built our way to this. You know, in the early 2000s, we had these zinc fingers. The very first tool that can do precise double-stranded breaks on a particular segment of the gene that we want, but these are clunky, laborious tools, and then that's matured into talons, which is more nimble. And then with CRISPR, we're able to program a specific genetic segment to actually go into really precisely the side of the genome that we want. But why can't you just shuttle in some CRISPR into mitochondria and let it do its magic, right? But a few of the key reasons why is there's not really any endogenous transport mechanisms to, to take RNA directly in the mitochondria. And then furthermore, if you think about how CRISPR and many of the other previous editors work, it's all based on generating double-stranded break to cut the mutated gene, right? And the problem is in the mitochondria, they don't have the DNA repair pathways that the nucleus has. So once you cut that mitochondria genome, basically the whole thing is fried, right? And that's definitely very toxic for the cell. So we need something that can enter into the mitochondria, which is hard. And secondly, we need something that doesn't break up the entire mitochondria genome. Right, right, right. In the evolution of our ability to engineer the genome, we started out with zinc fingers and talons and then moved to CRISPR, but all of these require creating a double-strand break. And if you did that in mitochondria, that is just going to lead to the mitochondrial DNA being destroyed because it can't repair itself after a double-stranded break. Whereas in the nucleus, there's all this machinery that actually, in the process of repairing the double-strand breaks, makes the targeted mutation that you're encoding. So to edit the mitochondrial DNA, they need a fundamentally different way of approaching the problem. And they're doing that through these enzymes called base editors. And we've known about base editors for a long time, 
but most base editors appear to only work on single-stranded DNA or RNA or loose nucleosides. And the advance here is that the base editor that they've identified, it can work on double-stranded DNA, which is really exciting and makes it really attractive for this application. How does this base editing enzyme catalyze the change from one base to another? At a very high level, what's interesting about these base editors is they're not removing one base and replacing it with another. You're quite literally transforming that base into a different base. So there's two types of base editors that exist today, adenosine deaminases and also cytosine deaminases. Basically, we can go from CG-based pairs to TA-based pairs and then AT-based pairs to GC-based pairs. So cytosine base editors basically converts cytosine to uracil. But because uracil belongs to RNA and not the DNA family, what you have to do with this is actually have a uracil glycosylase inhibitor so it doesn't turn back into cytosine and protects it until the next round of replication, at which point it's replaced to an A. Right. Yeah, it's removing this functional group from cytosine, which then that means without that functional group, it's now a uracil. But uracil, as you mentioned, is not a base that's found in DNA. It's a base that's found in RNA. But it can still be read as the mitochondrial genome is being replicated and base pairs with adenosine and now moves forward and becomes thiamine. That's right. It's quite literally changing the identity of one base into the identity of a different base by removing some molecules from its structure, which is really neat, right? A totally different way of catalyzing the reaction than zinc fingers, talons, or CRISPR. Now that we've talked about the mitochondrial genome, why we haven't been able to edit it yet, let's move into how these authors were able to edit this genome. So let's start with how the authors identified this base editing enzyme. I think it's got an interesting backstory. It was this microbiology lab that was looking at the different toxins that bacteria produce. And so bacteria, you know, in these mixed communities, they're always trying to kill off other bacteria so that they can expand and have the niche. And so they were looking at what the bacteria actually inject into each other to kill each other. (laughs) Yeah, the type 6 secretion system is what enables gram-negative bacteria to essentially inject antibacterial toxins into cells that come at them, to use a technical term. And they wanted to try to define the biochemical activity specifically of these type 6 secretion system deaminases. And they focused on a predicted one, which they referred to afterwards as DDDA. And then what they started to figure out was, okay, well, members of the superfamily are known to catalyze deamination of single-stranded DNA. Could they eventually find one that could get to a double-stranded DNA deaminase. Reading some of the interviews with the authors, it seems like they were just looking at this deaminase and they're like, it's acting differently. And then they figured out it was double-stranded. They're like, oh, this has potential. So we now have this cytidine deaminase, DDDA. We know that it can convert cytosine into uracil. So obviously, this is a toxin that you know bacteria use in their interbacterial warfare. If we let this loose into the human genome, it would convert every cytosine possibly that it can see. So the authors needed to find a way to restrict it and to make it non-toxic. Yeah. So they basically took a playbook out of the old zinc finger system, which basically split it in two halves. And once they come together in the interaction, the activity is restored. And it was pretty interesting as well because... In the paper, you'd see they tested 
splitting it into various ways. And they actually found that the activity and the specificity of the deaminase changes according to where you split it off. So I'm sure that's something that could optimize down the road. Yeah, I think it's such a cool idea that, you know, you've got this toxic protein and they just cut it in half and they showed that you could put both halves together and then restore its ability. So making it non-toxic was important, but the other element to make this an actual, you know, usable genome editor was to engineer it to have specificity. Back to our core principles here. We need a mitochondria editor that doesn't do double-stranded breaks and it's not guided by RNA, right? So we had the first part. We found a deaminase that can do base editing on double-stranded DNA. Check. So the next step is how do we get it to guide with targeted precision, but not be guided in RNA. And that's when we went back into our old genome engineering toolkit. And instead of using guided RNAs, we actually used the talons proteins. And so they utilized the talons proteins with some type of mitochondrial localization mechanism and then attached it to the deaminase. And those three things together allows you to shuttle to the mitochondrial genome segment that you want and then make the edit. Right. When we were learning how to design talons and we figured out how to localize those proteins to very specific genome sequences. And so here they took that same recipe and took those DNA binding portions and they attached one portion to one half of DDDA and then another portion to the other half of DDDA and add a mitochondrial localization signal to bring these two halves together only on DNA in this very sequence-specific manner. Which is so cool. And basically, this thing is like the infinity gauntlet of base <laughs> editing. Right? You take yeah. this toxin, you take all these pieces, and then you pull the pieces together and let the toxin do its magic in a very targeted and contained way. Wild. It's awesome. So now that they've created this engineered DDDA, which they call DDCBE, how did they validate it? How did they show that they were able to edit the mitochondrial DNA and have a functional impact on the cells? They wanted to demonstrate that they could do base editing on five mitochondrial genes. And the main ways that you measure success are, what is the editing efficiency, which is a proxy for how effective are you at delivering the machinery to where it needs to go, and how efficient is the machinery at making the edits that you're looking to make. And then on the other side of the ledger, you want to make sure that you're not making off-target edits to the genome whether it's within the mitochondria, or worse, you're not making off-target edits in the nuclear genome. Yeah, and they got anywhere from 4.6% to even up to 49% efficiency. And that range was due to the target and then also them shuffling around the DDDA, as we were talking about earlier, where you split the deaminase affects the precision and efficiency. And then The second very important part with all editors is the off-target effects. And what they found in the experiment was pretty low. All of it was below 0.1%. But of course, we would definitely have to test it in vivo and also test it in primary cells. But early data does show that it's pretty promising and it's not too promiscuous. So one thing that I really appreciated from this paper was that they showed that they could induce mutations that actually impacted mitochondrial behavior. So they edited this ND4 gene and then were able to show that it had lower rates of oxidative phosphorylation and decreased respiration rates, you know, demonstrating that the mutations that they made had a functional effect on the cell. So I think we all thought this paper was really well done. From the beginnings of bacterial warfare to turning a toxin into 
something that's non-toxic, to engineering specificity, to demonstrating that it has really good efficacy and low off-target rates, and then showing that it has this cell biological effect. So let's talk about some of the features of this base editor that make it an exciting advance in our genome engineering toolbox and what features need further development. This is a very early demonstration of an approach that has a lot of potential, but also has a long way to go, certainly for any sort of therapeutic applications. To drive this forward, you would obviously want to study how you can optimize its efficiency, how you can optimize its specificity, so that you can fully explore their therapeutic potential or their potential for creating models for studying disease. So what is required is all of the work necessary to turn the demonstration into a functional application. I agree. I mean, this thing is like a bioengineering marvel, but thinking about its path to the clinic, getting this type of three-part system into the cell is going to be you know, no trivial feat, right? Though there are a lot of CRISPR companies that are thinking through these situations, so I'm sure that the technology infrastructure will arise. But certainly, as we think about shuttling these massive proteins, three-part proteins at least, into the cell, delivery is going to be a challenging one to work on. One of the things that you mentioned before was that its efficiency ranged from 5 to 50%. So even at its upper range, is 50% good? Is that enough? Or do you think that's something that would have to be engineered further? A lot depends on the disease. In fact, a lot of times when you're developing therapeutics for very devastating conditions, a question that often comes up is, how much do you have to essentially move the levels of, say, gene expression to tip you from disease to normal function. In this case, something similar, right? There are lots of mitochondria in cells. And so at what point could you edit enough of the mitochondria for it to essentially tip the cell's function back into more of a normal state from a disease state? That varies from disease to disease. And so I think from a practical standpoint, if you were going to develop therapeutic applications, you would start with those where lower level of editing efficiencies are likely to still have a beneficial clinical effect on patients. One of the other limitations here is this is not a universal base editor in where you could willy-nilly change any base you'd like. This specifically impacts cytosine. And so for additional applications, one of the questions would be is can you build out the repertoire of tools that would allow you to have something that starts to look more like a universal base editor? Let's say that base editors were able to be engineered to target more specific sequences. Do you think that they could possibly become the predominant form of genome editing technology, even in the nucleus? Or do you think CRISPR-Cas has some kind of benefit that would make it win in a head-to-head comparison? So I don't think there's like a one-size-fit-all genome engineering system. We have tons of single nucleotide polymorphism-based diseases that makes up a lot of our monogenic diseases. Of course, if you want something that is very precise, you want a base editor. But then sometimes a large portion of the gene might be diseased and you want to knock in like a 10 kilobase segment in your genome. Why would you edit 10,000 specific bases, right? Whereas you can just knock the whole thing out. That's why this paper is so exciting. It just shows you can use these concepts interchangeably and build something new for a new dimension you want to target, right? Now we want to target mitochondria. Okay, let's build a system for that. In plants, like Jorge's beautiful history lesson on the endosymbiotic theory, if you want to do chloroplast editing, can we build an editing system for that too? So I think 
what we're going to find is that there's not going to be the best ever genome engineering system, but the core competencies and the concepts here can be leveraged for all different types of contexts, which makes this field as a whole so exciting. Yeah, the best genome engineering solution we can have is a wide repertoire of tools that we can bring the right tool for the job. What are the key take-home messages from this article and our discussion today? Well, I think one of the key take-home lessons from this is how quickly innovations are coming in this space. We're seeing innovation cycles accelerating, but we're also seeing them compounding on each other. Related to that, Lauren, as you pointed out, is the kinds of collaborations that are helping bring these advances to the fore. That cross-disciplinary work is driving a lot of these advances and accelerations and innovation that we see in this space. And the last thing I would say, I think, which is an important one, is there are many, many diseases that don't have a lot of very good options today. And so we're going to have to innovate our way to a better approach. And this is an early but potentially powerful glimmer of hope for finding novel ways to understand and study and ultimately treat mitochondrial diseases. I agree with that 100%. I think it's just like an incredible demonstration of engineering biology. Instead of thinking about whether we can discover a new class of drugs for mitochondrial diseases, this paper essentially started off with a genome engineering concept and a toolkit that we had and thought about how do we piece together these tools to engineer a new system that we can actually interrogate and rewrite diseases in mitochondria. Right. It's so much more powerful than one drug to treat one of the 150 mitochondrial diseases. This is a way to possibly create a therapy that could be tailored to each of them. Mm -hmm. Andy and Jorge, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club this week. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Lauren. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.